You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. Well, this morning, as I was leading up to this morning, that is, I've been praying and pondering, what do you say in light of our circumstances, what you see in the news, and what you see in your social media feed? And I've been persuaded that what we need today is a message directly for the church. In this message, I, I can't say everything that can be said in light of our circumstances. That's just the reality of the topic of racism. And you should also know, I'm going to share an unusual amount of personal stories. I think this is because I've been feeling this issue deeply in You'll see why here in a moment. Nonetheless, above everything I've said so far, it is critical that we think biblically about racism and how the gospel of Jesus Christ has an impact on racism and all unjust prejudices that exist. So I'm going to pray here in a moment, but my, my, my prayer is this for you and for me, is that our heart would be shaped more and more by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as that is done, we would look at issues like racism and then begin to feel what Christ feels and know what Christ knows. Because that's ultimately what we, what we want. To see things like God sees them, to feel them like God feels them, to know them no issues like God knows them. So I'm going to pray one more time briefly, but it's a prayer uh, from a man who is in desperate need of help to talk about a complicated and multi-layered um, question and issue. So I invite you to pray with me briefly. Father, that's the confession. I'm a needy beggar in need of help by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so my prayer is that ultimately your word would go forth It would be your word beyond my words that would shape our hearts and our life. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's get right to it. Racism is evil. I truly believe racism comes from the pit of hell. God hates the sin of racism. There is no room for racism in the family of God. So when I say that I'm speaking to the church, I really mean it. There's no room for racism in the church. As a matter of fact, the Bible is radically inclusive of people from all nationalities, languages, ethnic backgrounds, and yes, skin color. By the time I'm done... I'm gonna, my hope is to show the beauty of diversity among the people of God. I want to show that the family of God is not homogenous. 
It is heterogeneous. It's diverse. So not only do I want to show the beauty of diversity among the people of God, I want to show you from Galatians 3, which Aaron just read, what unites people who are different. I think the supreme answer, the chief answer, the best answer to the barriers people put up, including barriers because of skin color, I believe the supreme answer is the gospel of Jesus Christ. I don't think I'm simply placing my worldview on the text to make my case. I truly believe Galatians 3, verses 23 to 29, provides the remedy to the problem we currently see all across America right now. Here's a bit of context before dialing in to our primary passage. The book of Galatians was written... Because the churches in the region of Galatia were being taught a different gospel. They were being taught a heretical gospel. As a matter of fact, if you go all the way back to Galatians 1, chapter 1, verse 1, Paul comes right out of the chute and he's like, stop believing a different gospel. Knock it off. Remember what I taught you, the true gospel of Jesus Christ. And so Paul goes right after it. The Apostle Paul wrote to remind the Galatians that it is only by God's grace through faith in which they have been saved. Works can't save a person. Trying harder doesn't save a person. Pulling up the bootstraps does not save a person. A nationality does not save a person. Ethnic background does not save a person. A person's skin color does not save. Only the faith of Christ justifies a person before a holy and just God, Galatians 2.15. And then we move forward into Galatians 3.23. Paul continues to make his case for faith. As a matter of fact, Paul, he's like a lawyer. He thinks systematically and he even writes systematically in order to make his case. And even in this passage alone, we get the sense of of a lawyer-type thinker at work. Just watch the prepositions here as he kind of makes his case for faith. we got this preposition now in verse 23. So then, another preposition in verse 24. But, in verse 25, the word for again, gar in the Greek in verse 26. And then for again in verse 27. Then we got the word day, which is and in the Greek, verse 29. It's him just simply making a systematic case that faith is the only way way a person is saved. Faith is the only way a person is justified before a holy and just God. Paul is simply showing the power of faith in Christ over the law. The law is not abolished, it's Matthew 5, 17, but it has been fulfilled in Christ. The law had a purpose though. And then we see in Galatians 3 this important statement. But now that faith has come, look at verse 25. We are no longer under a guardian. He's talking about the law. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Do not read past the phrase, you are all sons of God. All. 
Meaning, if you have faith in Jesus, you are a part of an amazing community. Faith is the unifying factor for the people of God. You are a member of a family with other Christians in your local church. You are part of an amazing family with other Christians in your community, in this country, and all across this globe. Now this is good news, right? Well, of course it is. This is great news. So why do we see so many problems? How come it feels like the church is fractured? How come when you look at your social media feed or your news outlet, it seems like the world has never been more broken? The answer is surprisingly simple. The answer is sin. Sin is the reason why racism exists. Some protest and say, you're reducing it to such a small level, such a simple level, and the answer is yes. It is that simple. Sin is the reason why the, why the country of Uganda experienced a genocide in 1994. Sin is the reason why countless innocent children are currently being trafficked. Sin is the problem. When it, when it comes to discussing racism, I have to begin with sin because first and foremost, sin, or excuse me, racism is a spiritual problem. It's a spiritual problem. Listen, you must begin with the bad news before you can understand the good news. And unless you acknowledge the source of the problem, you will struggle to apply the remedy. And if you cannot apply the remedy, then you surely will not be able to fight for lasting change. Lasting change. The passage we're looking at right now tells us why and how we can apply the ultimate remedy to the sin of racism. And allow me to say this before digging into the details of this passage. It's obvious that there's a national conversation taking place about how to combat racism. From the streets to Hollywood, everyone has an opinion. And I think conversation's healthy. I think that's good. I'm for having conversations. However, let's make sure the Christian response to racism is a part of of the conversation. At present, my fear is that the church is not rightly speaking into our current cultural crisis. The Christian response to racism begins with saying there is a sin problem in individual human hearts. But the Christian response is also all people who have faith in Jesus Christ have been adopted into the most amazing family. In this family, supreme love, compassion, patience, forgiveness is extended regardless of language, skin color, or nationality. 
After we check our hearts, the church can be a model to this broken country about what it means to listen with compassion, to love with action, speak with patience, and demonstrate the power of forgiveness, especially in our cancel culture. If the church can get this right, she can make a monstrous impact on the culture and perhaps, yes, bring revival. But the church must stay on point with its message and she must stay on point in how she responds to its own message. Now to our passage. In this passage, we are told what it looks like to be united through Christ. That would be the overarching theme. And faith is the answer. It says in verse 27, it says Christians have been baptized into Christ and they have put on Christ. To say a Christian has been baptized into Christ means he or she have publicly declared allegiance. This is more powerful than putting your, your hand over your heart and saying the Pledge of Allegiance. You're baptized, when you're baptized, you are saying, Christ is mine and I am his. Christian publicly says that it is Christ whom he or she ultimately serves. In Christ's family, even over your own biological family, your spiritual family takes precedence. It takes preeminence because of Christ. When you are baptized into Christ, you are united because of Christ to a family of all shapes and sizes. Verse 27 also says that Christians have put on Christ, which is interesting because it literally means you put on Christ like you put on your clothes. So every Christian has put on Christ like you put your shirt on this morning. I mean, think about the imagery for a moment. Is there anything more connected to your body than what you're wearing right now? Here's the difference between what you're all wearing right now and putting on Christ. You all are, generally speaking, wearing something different. Christians have put on Christ, which means when you look at another Christian, the first thing you see is Christ in that other person. Now, the other person's clothing does not change necessarily, just like a person does not cease to be black, white, brown, tall, short. A person's eye color does not change. How God creates every precious individual does not change. However, when a person has put on Christ, what we first see in that person is Christ. We see a person made in God's image. And in the church, we see another precious brother or sister in Christ. Paul makes another statement in this passage which hammers home the unity point between all Christians, what it means to be united. In verse 28, it says Christians are one in Christ. So we are baptized in the Christ, we are clothed in Christ, and we have put on Christ. We are one in Christ. I don't want to belabor the point here, but we must see what unites us even though the family of God is very diverse. One of the reasons why 
I'm an advocate of, Amer- of taking American Christians to uh, missions trips across over, going overseas, even if it's a short-term missions trip. But one reason why I'm an advocate is so that they can see the, be- the beauty of diversity in the, body- in the body of Christ. For example, I took my first trip in 2005, and I went to Uganda. It was the first time where it struck me, oh my goodness, oh my goodness, the body of Christ is much more diverse than I realize. It's not that I didn't see my new friends as black Ugandans. I did, just as they saw me as a white American. They called me Mzungu, which means white, white person. And I got the shirt that says Mzungu. But the gospel of Jesus Christ shows us how to celebrate together what makes us unique. The gospel of Jesus Christ helps us to celebrate the diversity in the body of Christ. It's faith in the gospel which unites us to Christ. All of us. And this is why verse 28 in our passage this morning is so important to understand. Because of sin, sometimes we do not see the beauty of diversity in the family of God, but we look for opportunities to put up barriers. But the gospel says no to the barriers. The gospel says no to putting up barriers because of the skin color of an individual. Quick story before we look at the details of verse 28. Some of you know this story because I've had the one-on-one conversations with you about this. At a young age, my parents exposed me to the sin of racism at a very young age. In the early 90s, black residents of the city of Dubuque, where I was raised, had um, crosses burned on their lawn, and usually next to the cross that was burned on their lawn, it said, the KKK lives. Around that same time, the KKK decided to come into town and take up residence in Washington Park in downtown Dubuque. And I thank God my dad filed all four of us boys and my mom into the Burgundy Astro van and drove us down to Washington Park. One of the the brothers had asked, Dad, why are you bringing us here? And he said, Sons, I want you to see what evil looks like. I want you to see the face of wickedness. After we attended, after we drove by and saw that, we attended a peace rally at Eagle Point Park in Dubuque. I mean, less than 30 years ago, that kind of garbage was still taking place. Dubuque, once again, experienced more cross burnings as recent as 2016. Why? Sin. Sin located in individual human hearts. In particular here, the sin of racism. Anytime you treat someone as less than you, you are out of step with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Racism is an affront to the gospel precisely because one group of people with a, with a specific skin color treats another group of people with a different skin color as less than them. 
That can also happen on an individual basis. Now the gospel does the opposite. If a person is in Christ, then there is equality in the family of God. When you are in Christ, the barriers that we put up between people, they're broken down. This is why the culture desperately needs to hear how the gospel can make an impact on racism. I'm not backing down off that point. This is the supreme answer to the problems that we see across America. And frankly, the church needs to step up and get its act together and get on message and respond rightly to its message. How the gospel breaks down the barriers, I truly believe, brings about healing and change. Now let's see it from verse 28. In verse 28, we read about three distinctions. Jew and Greek, slave and free, male and female. Each distinction hits upon an area of society where the gospel breaks down barriers between people and God's family. What we see is that these distinctions do not cease to exist, but, but the gospel is applied to the sinful walls that are put up because of, this, of these distinctions. And while race is not explicitly mentioned in this verse, we will certainly see how race can be included in this passage. Let's look at the distinctions one at a time. In the first century, Jew and Greek, or Jew and Gentile, when you read your New Testament, was used to describe a person's ethnic background. The Apostle Paul, while he converted to Christianity, was an ethnic Jew. Paul is saying that his ethnic background, because of Christ, does not make him superior over those who do not have a Jewish background. For example, I'm a full-blooded American. I was born in America, and unless the Lord does something different, I'll likely die in America, probably in this state of Iowa. But my ethnicity or nationality does not make me superior to anyone else. Now, the gospel does not mean I cease to be American, no more than Paul did not cease to be an ethnic Jew. But in Christ... My ethnic background is irrelevant when determining if I'm a part of this beautiful family, God's family. In Christ, the ethnic and nationalistic barriers that are created to keep people apart are completely demolished. Therefore, our local churches, as much as our context allows, should be ethnically diverse. I remember one time, quick story, I, I, I was talking to a black pastor who, who was pastoring a church in an urban context. I said, I just desire for our churches to be more diverse racially. And he, he, he laid it to me straight. He's like, you know what? Your church is going to be the makeup of your community. Just remember that. I was really helped by my, my, by my brother in Christ. And so as much as our, our context allows, we should pursue diversity, Absolutely. And when the global church is considered, it is certainly diverse, with, frankly, white evangelical Christians being in the minority. The point being made here is also why I have reservations about overblown American patriotism. 
Not among all people, but some. Now, do, not, do not get me wrong. I love America. I will wear the red, white, and blue on the 4th of July. I have no doubt my wife will make sure we're all decked out in red, white, and blue. We'll take the picture. I take my kids to the Veterans Cemetery on Memorial Day. Every Memorial Day, that's, we make that trip. We want to remember our veterans who sacrificed their lives to help make America what it is. However, my nationality, which connects many of us together, is relatively insignificant compared to being a part of God's kingdom. When you get to heaven, you're not going to be thinking about if you're American or not. It's not what you're going to be saying. You're going to be looking at Jesus and you're going to be saying, I'm with him. You must keep your love for nation in the proper perspective in light of your love for God's kingdom. And when you do that, you will not put up barriers between yourself and someone else who might be different nationally or come from a different ethnic background. The second distinction is slave and free. Without a doubt, it is the word slave that piques interest here, especially in light of our current circumstances. The Greek word in which we get the word slave is oftentimes interpreted as servant or bondservant. How Paul understood slave or servant in his context is vastly different than how we understand American slavery. Scholars are almost unanimous on this point. God's word does condemn slavery as we know it in 1 Timothy 1.10 where enslavers are condemned, meaning a slave trader or a kidnapper is condemned. So the Bible is not silent on that issue. What Paul is getting at here in Galatians 3 is in regards to a person's social or economic status. How society views a person is irrelevant in the family of God. How much money is in your checking and savings account does not matter when it comes to being a part of this diverse family. In the family of God, in the church, the millionaire sits equally next to the person living paycheck to paycheck. But just like the first distinction, social or economic differences are not dismissed, but the barriers that are put up with these distinctions are torn down. The rich and the poor break bread together at the same table in the family of God. Again, I hope the church can see the power of the gospel on this point and then live freely with one another. I also hope the culture would peer its head in the door of the church and see this beautiful diversity at work. To see the beauty of social and economic diversity in the local church. I'll never forget the time I became a pastor of a church um, before planning this church. A long-standing member who was older than me and heading toward retirement took me out to lunch. It was a really gracious act, and, and, and he made a huge impact on my, on my life, and we're actually still friends, really good friends. And we we'll called each other, and uh, we'll talk for hours. And uh, he said, hey, pastor, I just met him. And I'm just like, whoa, it's taken back. I'm like, you just called me your pastor. Like, because of your job, your, your social circles are vastly different. You've made oodles of money, so economically we're vastly different. And you're calling me pastor. You're just showing me respect. 
But it didn't matter to him how much money he made or I made. He did not allow his vastly different social status and vastly different economic status to become a barrier between us. And that is what I love about the body of Christ. I mean, think for a moment about the various narrow social and economic contexts in America. Where else do you see this kind of diversity? The third distinction is male and female. What Paul is not saying is that faith in Christ means you cease to be a male or female. Nothing could be farther from the truth. Paul isn't all of a sudden giving up on God's design for men and women. The Bible is replete with verses about what it means to be a male or a female. Instead, we need to see the beautiful unity of men and women who are in Christ. Women are equally members of the family of Abraham with men. And there are clearly social implications that can be drawn from the unity. In Paul's day, this was perhaps the most difficult barrier to break down. Of the three, this is probably the most difficult barrier to break down. And without a doubt, women have been marginalized throughout history. But it should not be so in God's church. In God's family, the son and the daughter of God have equal access to the father. In God's family, the son and daughter are equally loved by their Savior. Go back to verse 26 for one moment. Paul uses the literal Greek word for sons to say all sons are in Christ, which is very interesting. It's an interesting way for Paul to talk about how men and women are equal before God. Why didn't he use the phrase sons and daughters, right? The reason is actually powerful. To say there is no male or female and still use the word sons in verse 26, is to say that all the privileges and blessings sons received in the first century is now extended to God's daughters as well. While men and women are different, biology in the Bible could tell us all we need to know about the differences, the beautiful differences between men and women. But differences are no reason to create barriers in the body of Christ. Barriers that create prejudices against someone of the opposite sex. Jesus died on a cross for the redemption of women, just as for men. Once again, do you see how the gospel is the best solution to the sinful barriers that one person or a group of people can put up toward another person or another group of people? The gospel crushes these barriers. Faith in Jesus Christ gives you a new identity that makes you clean from sin and causes you to celebrate what makes you different while at the same time being united together through Jesus Christ. As I have already said, I think the church needs to get this right. And you, Christian, need to be careful. I'm going to put myself in this category for sure. You need to be careful not to allow unnecessary noise compromise the gospel message for yourself. Y'all know what I'm talking about. If you gave me your phone, I looked at your social media feed, I saw the news outlets you f frequent, I will know quickly what you allow to shape your view of our current cultural crisis. And by the way, some of what you're reading, listening to, and watching might be helpful. 
but a whole lot of it is unhelpful. So here's what I want to do in the remainder of my time. In light of the complexity of what we see and read and the importance of the gospel and the importance of applying the gospel to our lives and into the current situations we find ourselves in. I'm going to give you several biblical principles to help you navigate how to think about racism in America, even just for you personally. Uh, These are principles that I have tried to apply in my life. Here they are. First, learn to listen with compassion. In particular, if you're white, listen to learn to your black brothers and sisters with compassion. If you can show that you care by listening well, then you are on your way toward having a productive conversation. Here's what I've done over the years. Since seminary, I have been mindful of asking questions to my black friends, black professors, and black pastors about their perspective on race in America. I hear their story and then ask them about their opinion of what is going on right now in the moment that I'm having that conversation. In every conversation, and there have been plenty, I walk away helped in how I should think about race relations in America and specifically race in the church. I want to encourage you to do the same when it's appropriate and helpful. Be quick to listen and be full of compassion. I think what you will find is having compassion begins to break down barriers or false perceptions. Here's another practical point about how the church is radically different than our culture and what we can do. And it's on this point, the church can make a massive impact on the culture. Practice repentance, which leads toward forgiveness. Now, I do not expect a Christian to seek forgiveness for something they have never sinned of. No. I don't see that anywhere in Scripture. But if there is sin, then a Christian must be quick to repent. Quick Therefore, repent of racist jokes. Repent of the time you've stereotyped someone who does not have the same nationality, speak your language, or share your skin color. Repent. And if necessary, pursue those you need to pursue for forgiveness. That is wholly biblical. Here's why this is a very powerful point that at the current time, culture knows nothing about. At present, we live in a cancel culture that offers no avenues of true forgiveness. No avenues for biblical forgiveness. No avenues to understand the power of forgiveness. Meaning, if you've ever done anything wrong, you will be shamed or disregarded. Now, we caught you doing that when you were 15 years old. Guess what? You have no voice. You are not forgiven, and you will be shamed, which is nothing but against the gospel of Jesus Christ. But the gospel does the opposite. The gospel is ready and waiting to see people set free through the power of forgiveness. You all know when you've sought forgiveness or you've forgiven, the power that is unleashed because of Christ, because of what he has done at the cross. 
in Christ and because of the power of His forgiveness, you are free because you belong to Christ. Repentance and forgiveness is powerful. And if the church can do this well, oh my, how the world could look in and see, wow, I've never seen anything like that before. That is worth pursuing. Third way the church can be an example to the culture is to love with actions. The church needs to remember that the gospel is not only applied to our individual life, but it pushes us out to love others with the love of Christ. It pushes us out. Just as Christ has loved you, you are called to go out and love others. How can you love with actions, especially someone of another race, language, or ethnic background? There are many things I could say here. But here's what we do at the Powers Home. We pursue simple acts of kindness. We are conscious that wherever and when, whenever we go out, we are ready to help others in need. And I know many of you do the same because I've heard your stories. And when we act in kindness, it's good to do it toward those who are different from you. That's going to break down barriers. I'm going to brag on my wife and kids for a moment. My wife isn't going to like this, but we can talk later. But they constantly look for opportunities to act in love toward others, constantly. And they do things you do not read about on Sharice's social media feed. She isn't going to tell you all that she has done. But they are done because the other person is an image bearer of God, and they are worthy of dignity and respect, regardless of their language, ethnic background, nationality, and race. I want to encourage you all to do the same. Act with love toward your neighbor at the grocery store or at the park. As a church, let's, let's apply Romans 12.10 here. Here's, here's what it says. Love one another with brotherly affection. Now get this. Outdo one another in showing honor. So tell you what. Let's outdo one another in showing honor. Let's outdo one another in showing love to our neighbor in radical, gospel-like, Christ-centered ways. You want to outdo me? Let's go. I, I want to outdo you. Let's do it. You want to break down barriers that are put up because of sin? Outdo one another in showing honor and love to one another. The last point the church can have an impact on culture when it comes to race in America is through the hope that we have because of what is to come. The hope we have is that there will be a day when all the barriers will come down. All of them. I think I mentioned this passage a few weeks ago. I want to do it again. Here is, what, here is who is representative in the body of Christ when Jesus returns. Ever think about that? Who's all coming back with Jesus? Well, we read a little bit about here in, Ro in uh, Revelation 7-9. What is to come should shape our present. Here it is. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from every tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches 
in their hands. Do you hear that? Do you hear the diversity and the beauty of diversity to come that are all united in our Savior, Jesus Christ? We can let the future inform our present. That will be a glorious day, by the way. There will be no more division, but differences will be celebrated. There will be no more murders of innocent people. There will be no more rioting. But all of God's elect will be brought together to worship the Lamb. And amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we sit underneath your word. At the end of the day, my hope and prayer, not only for my own heart, but for the heart of every person who's listening to this message, is that your word would come to bear in their lives. That by the power of the Holy Spirit, we would see Christ is glorious, and that we would love well, we would listen with compassion, love and actions, that we would, un- we would remember that all people you've created have been created in your image. And I pray for the church, may we stand up, may we rise up in this occasion, not only apply the gospel to our lives, but be pushed out to see the gospel go forth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.